I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. There are some new conspiracy theories. You'd think that we just rattle the same ones around, but I discovered recently that some people don't think birds are real. Oh. What? what? Oh. Yeah, that there are people who don't believe in birds and that, that birds are all essentially high-tech cameras that fly around and spy on people. Uh. Also, very expensive. Because <laughs> when I go out and I... When I look in any direction... On on during the day, I see I don't know between ten and a hundred birds. It's got to be pretty. All on the same stretch of wire too. So I mean, how wasteful is that of just that bird's camera battery, where they're just all sitting there looking at me? There is literally nothing happened. You think they'd spread out to some sort of equidistant, you know, coverage area, but they don't. And also, what do they think happens when you buy fried chicken? What do they think that is if not a bird? It's pork, obviously. Well, I live on a farm, so the, the bird ratio out here is off the charts. So there's probably about a thousand birds that I can see on a given day. Um, and some of these cameras just fly and smack into my window and fall down disabled. So what's that about? Yeah, exactly. It's like these, what do they think? It's all like Google Earth? I mean, I don't understand it. <laughs> but I really, for a long time, my conspiracy was I didn't believe that the bird conspiracy was real. And I'm like, I have to find somebody who thinks that birds are fake. And I'm like, mm. they, they do exist. They're not as plentiful as, say, the flat earthers, which are shockingly still around, going back to the time of Victorian illustrations with, you know, a flat earth on top of a giant turtle on top of several elephants. And you're just like, <laughs> what is going on? But I mean, I don't know. I think we just, we live in a society. <laughs> we live in a society where some people just are contrarians. Yeah. Where they why just wouldn't can- you think... Why wouldn't you think at that point that, um, you know, the world is like the Truman Show for you? I mean, if all, if all the birds are spying on you, maybe everyone is just interacting with you on that level and, you know, they're all waiting for you to do something and just, you know, playing their parts. I, I think that's called <sighs> schizophrenia. I think people yeah. who legitimately believe that are schizophrenic. I've got a favorite uh, new conspiracy theory, and I hope I didn't hear this from you, Mike, because it might have been from you. People, okay. the people who do not believe $2 bills exist. Oh, have you tried to pass one at a store and they just rejected it? <laughs> no, I was. I just hearing someone talk about it. I was hearing someone talking about the the denial of people of the existence of two dollar bills. Now I've been Paul. I've been to Australia and you've got that wonderful indestructible money. Um, oh yeah, but, we've got lovely, but, colorful money. I but I don't think that there is a two a two Australian dollar denomination. Is there? Uh, it's a coin now. It oh, used to coin. be a note. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't believe we've ever had a $2 coin in the United States, but we've definitely have had, in times past, a $2 bill, and it's now the sort of thing where um, you get those comical anecdotes on the internet about millennials and younger working at the Taco Bell, who someone comes in and uh, and pays, tries to pay with their with a $2 bill, 
and they have to call the manager over who is squarely north of 30 years old to verify indeed yes this is legal currency and such a thing as a two dollar bill does exist uh but i admit it's a strange notion it is a it is a pretty weird weird. it's also weird that it's I mean, Thomas Jefferson is on the $2 bill, and the thing to understand about it, Paul, is that the $2 bill came out twice. Once, I believe, during the Bicentennial in 1976, and then it was reissued like the Star Wars Special Edition (laughs) in, like, 2002. Yes. (laughs) So there's kind of these two waves of it, and it also, I believe, came out and never got the update that... The rest of our money, aside from the $1 bill, got. Because I remember when they changed that up, we famously have boring-looking money. So yes. anytime there's a change, it seems just cataclysmic here. Um, mm. On the back of all bills over the one, uh, in the bottom right corner, there's this giant, fake-looking giant number of the denomination. And that came in in the late 90s, and I remember thinking that that was a really bad fake job the first time I saw it when I was working at a movie theater in high school. And um, they've been slowly adding a little splash of color. It's still kind of the boring boring green, but I did once get a, a, a counterfeit $1 bill at a job I got once. <laughs> and just the amount of work that somebody had to put into that because it felt a bit construction papery and I'm like okay <laughs> what and I picked it up and it was like white with just the printing on it and I stopped and I just told the guy I was like I'm sorry I don't think this is a real one dollar bill and he just looked at me and goes who would fake a one <laughs> <laughs> and I handed it back to him and he says oh my god this is fake <laughs> That's, that's just what strong. a counterfeiter would say when accused. Exactly. <laughs> and he was just weird. He was just amused by it, but he was, seemed like he was happy that he could keep it so he could show it to somebody. Wow. <laughs> but it's also kind of weird at all because I imagine for a lot of people much younger than us, considering we're we're climbing into middle age now, the people who are in their 20s, I guess you could say the millennials and the Zoomers, because millennials are crawling towards 40 now too. Um, that the idea of using cash at all must seem really bizarre because I hardly use it anymore either. Yeah, I just feel sorry for the, uh, you know, the guys who clean your windscreen at the traffic lights because no one has any change anymore. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. It's, it's harder I, to leave tips. It's harder to give money to somebody who needs it desperately. Yeah, I, I think the only reason why when I have it, when I can keep it, um, I try to keep it in smaller denominations with me because when I'm at a restaurant, I just want to, you know, I am on the side of the people who are working in the service industry. They could be paid more. They're usually very thankless jobs and they work really hard. Uh, so I like to tip them in cash because then it doesn't, you know, what, what happens between us doesn't need to bother Uncle Sam. Um, if they well, have- There's also a lot of wage theft in this country, right. too, where there's right. a lot of bosses that take that money and don't tell you how much they take. Right, and, but, and, um, not, and not greater... that I'm advocating that people like withhold their tips from the government and then get audited by the IRS, but I'm just saying it could be between me and my server, and Uncle Sam doesn't have to know about it. That's just that's you, just the way I do it. If you really want to be horrified, Paul, by how uh, wages work in this country, uh, in many states, I don't believe we're one of them, but there are many states where. If you are in a job that is tipped, they can pay you less than the minimum wage, sometimes as low as like 2 or $3 an hour, because they That's expect insane. that the tips will make up the rest of it. Yeah. Hmm. See, That's that an is, awful system. 
it's really not good. And um, yeah. it, it's really hard to get momentum on changing it. However, it turns out if you put that stuff on the ballot, it passes really easily because people are like, hey, I want more money. But uh, <laughs> politicians don't want us to have more money for some reason. And oh, uh, they make like six figures. So I don't know. But um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's why they have birds spying on us all the time. <laughs> it's big aviation. Yeah. I like to explain to people, like, I work in government, and the government cannot organize a conspiracy because I work in government. I see how dysfunctional <laughs> it all is from the inside. Um, you know, I've worked for a government department for uh, about 18 years now, and, you know, they can't organize a good, simple program. You know, the the fact uh, they've got to have these policies and then they have to work them into procedures and make them execute. You know, the fact that there's a worldwide conspiracy of anything is just impossible to imagine on a government level because, you know, it doesn't work like that. There's there's so many people, like all the government departments, uh, even the sections within the government departments, they're all trying to achieve their goals. And the best way to achieve your goal is to basically undermine another area that's trying to achieve their goal because you want to achieve yours and not, you know, it's not working as a whole. So the fact that there's any sort of global government conspiracy on anything is just, it's the most outlandish science fiction I can imagine. It's just insane. Yeah, it imagines a kind of, of efficiency that just doesn't exist. And the fact yeah. that everyone would be working harmoniously when, what is it, uh, Alan Moore said that the world is rudderless and that's actually more terrifying um, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but I think I think that's where the, the conspiracy mindset comes from, which is I think there's a kind of comfort in there being a ruthlessly efficient, all-powerful you know, evil entity that controls everything because everything is under control. So if something really terrible happens, it happened by design rather than by either a natural process or because a bunch of people were fighting or because there was a natural disaster or because you had a lone nut with a gun or any of that, you know, that if a war starts or whatever, it, it started because a group of evil people in a secret room decided that it would. And yeah. it's kind of weird. It's a really kind of upside down version of God has everything in control kind of argument where in fact, it's a malevolent force this way, but at least, you know, that if something does happen, you know, a malevolent force did it, you know, it's like, Oh, that TV show got canceled. Oh, that's cause they were too close to the truth or, you know, any of that <laughs> stuff. It's easier to assume that, you know, literally Everybody in the world helped kill John F. Kennedy, whether it was Castro, the mafia. I mean, everybody was in on it. People that would never work together were in on it. They all came together for this one thing, and it just it doesn't really work that way. I mean, crazy stuff happens, and you look at something like World War One. you know, a guy got shot in the back of his car, and it set off a chain reaction where all of these other little things that had been set up in all these other different little ways and all of this history and all of these past alliances and all of these problems all kind of came to a head with one little moment because of what one guy did to set it finally off. It was all there ready to go, but it wasn't that somebody decided that they would really like if several million people died. And how if we just dug up all of Western Europe and made it look like Mordor? I mean, there was no plan for that. Yeah. But, I mean, people seem to love the conspiracy theory because it puts them, uh, you know, in the know and they feel like they're special and they understand things that no one else understands. Um, where, you know, the reality is 
there is no conspiracy, not special. I mean, people are doing tracking you with your phone. You don't need any nanobots in your head. Um, we don't need birds watching us. You know, everyone, you know, they want to know your details for consumer reasons mostly, and, you know, they have them because you're a consumer. I'm a consumer. We're all consumers. And that's kind of the ugly part of it is that I think there's this element. I The best explanation I've heard of the QAnon conspiracy um, was they said the QAnon conspiracy is that people believe a bunch of rich elites are monsters in private rather than just openly in public the way that they actually are. <laughs> and it's it's remarkable because I think there's this need that the human race has for stories and we don't like stories that aren't emotionally or narratively satisfying that real life is messy real life has character motivations that don't always make sense or crazy people who come in out of nowhere, things that aren't attached, having big impacts on other things. And it just seems kind of crazy and chaotic, but you kind of want it to make sense. And you're like, well, if this character was a big deal in season one, he needs to be a big deal by season five, or I need a payoff from this. So in a weird kind of way, it's kind of like conspiracy theories are kind of headcanon for real life. <laughs> I, I keep thinking about it, Mike, and uh, uh, I, I think about when the, the time when you start to think about conspiracy theories, which is, of course, when you're a teenager, which is that, that special, that glorious time in your life when you uh, when your subjective experience of how much knowledge you have is really high, but your objective amount of knowledge is is low and your confidence especially your confidence about how much knowledge you have is at an all-time high and it just so happens that that is the time when most people start to believe in conspiracy theories which says something about the mindset of of people who go into their adulthood to believe conspiracy theories but i just think about the the sort of pop culture manifestation for for my youth would be x-files and I think about how in a in a in a QAnon world, in a really in a post-internet world, actually, um, how X Files doesn't make any sense, and how even the even the idea of having Mulder being the hero and the conspiracy being uh, the conspiracy being oh it's the government covering covering up the truth about aliens and other such things. Uh, you could try to you could attempt to make that show now it would be so laughably ridiculous because of what the notion of what conspiracy actually is um that you wouldn't be able to do it you wouldn't be able to reproduce it in the same way and i haven't i have not gone back to watch it but i imagine it will be a kick in oh ho, ho, the 90s you know that that's that's the the, <laughs> the, the, the takeaway from it would be is like this is so absurd <laughs> It was also a pre-internet world right. where knowledge of a lot of the stuff that they were touching on was not really well known. Oh, cell phone cameras for fuck's sake. Cell phone cameras. Cell phone ca I mean, that's the thing. With, I've had these arguments about Bigfoot with people, too. Um, it There really isn't a lot of space for Bigfoot to hide anymore, not just because of all of the bird cameras. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, just satellites and stuff. The, the, the stuff that we use if, like, a hiker goes missing. Um, it seems like there isn't a lot of space where Bigfoot can hide and it, and that, that disparity between, you know, the sort of like encroachment of a surveillance state on one hand and these cryptozoological creatures that are supposed to exist just outside of civilization on the other hand, 
you end up getting these weird mashups of different conspiracies to explain essentially what Marvel Comics used to call a no prize to to manage to keep the game going. And I've heard some where Bigfoot is an interstellar transdimensional being who can pass in and out of dimensional doorways. So that's how he's escaping. Sure. Uh, all the notice, yeah. despite the fact that we just keep knocking down all the trees and there's not <laughs> a lot obvious. of places for him to hide. Um, I've seen, I saw one version of the Bigfoot conspiracy, which matched up with a kind of Christian fundamentalism and that Bigfoot is a singular being rather than something that has to have a breeding population. And he's actually uh, the biblical Cain who is still immortal and is wandering the world as a Chewbacca like figure <laughs> and is impossible to kill. And he's kind of, I guess just, is he Connor McLeod? Did Kane is, is Kane Connor McLeod? Is he the he last kind of one? Is Connor McLeod? I don't know if he gets into, I don't know if there's any other biblical characters that are also immortal that he occasionally gets into sword fights with, <laughs> but I would love to see that story. But again, I mean, it's uh, these conspiracies sometimes come from the fact that we just desperately want them to be true because we want a better story. Um, like with the JFK assassination, I really liked the theory, which has no basis in fact whatsoever, that the idea that Joe DiMaggio, you know, the baseball <laughs> legend, killed JFK. Obviously, somewhat, somewhat distraught and heartbroken because he never got over his marriage to Marilyn Monroe and mm. because he had the hand-eye coordination to pull off that shot. <laughs> and I think they actually referenced that in the Vertigo series 100 Bullets, the idea of a baseball legend having killed the president. And it it's probably my favorite one. Is it true? Well, fuck no. But I like it as a story. And I wonder that that's what helps people kind of hold on, especially because some of these people, they build their whole identity around knowledge of of this sort of stuff in the same way that we might know a lot about the DC or Marvel or Star Wars or Star Trek universes. But they're putting it on something and there's this need for it to be true, because if it's not true, well, what the fuck are you doing? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I find, I mean, personally, I mean, I'm... I over 50 now so i starting to feel like experiences of my youth are like conspiracy theories now because there's very little evidence for things that i remember um apart from what's in my head you know i haven't got that many people around me who go oh yeah i remember that i we used to go there and that was this this was that shop and not this place and yeah there were you know there did used to be three small cinemas in your town and you know it feels like your past becomes more and more fictional as the older you get yeah, I can see that. I mean, I can remember a time where, you know, pre-internet, there were all of these things that were such a major part of our lives. And I think in a lot of ways, from a generational standpoint, we've gone through two of these big changes so far in recent memory. One was around 2000. I guess the other one was maybe 2010, um, where the world just radically changes. Industries that existed don't exist types of art and types of devices just don't exist anymore or become irrelevant almost overnight. And, you know, like when's the last time you were able to go to a record store? <laughs> I certainly don't remember the last time. I mean, it's in a weird sort of way, comic book stores feel like this last piece of a certain kind of retail establishment only because no other store carries that thing you know, keeping that entire industry alive. And the more it goes, it feels kind of odd that, you know, the record store 
in the comic book store, you know, or an old head shop, they have far more in common with each other than they do with, like, say, going to Target or Walmart. And because you get the sort of idea of this little business as, you know, an extension of a certain personality where the person who started this business didn't do this because they thought they were going to get rich or expand to like 20 stores. They really just wanted this one store so they could be surrounded by a certain kind of thing that they liked and hopefully not starve. And they don't stay in it because they ever see any kind of success. They just can't not do it. And the comic book store seems to be that last place because places like, you know, Target or, you know, what are these big box stores that are selling all of the records and things, maybe not the specialty stuff, but at least all the top 40 stuff um, that those record stores used to buy um, haven't started selling comics, really. And if they do, they do it in a real half-assed way. So it's kind of comic book industry is this weird little place where all of these tiny mom and pop businesses are selling products made specifically for them by these massive multimedia companies as IP farms. And the more I think of it, it just seems insane that it, no one would design that business. It had to evolve into that. Well, heaven help us if Costco starts selling bongs, then no, <laughs> none of the head shops. So when we live in, I don't know about you, Paul, as, as, uh, has, has marijuana been sufficiently legalized in Australia or... Are you still in the old mode? Uh, there's places where it's okay. Oh. So, uh, you know, it is changing. Um, we, yeah, well, well but... our, our experience in Seattle, in Washington, and in, in plenty of other states is that it's, it's, it's transformed into, from the head shop where, you know, there's a glass case with, uh, you know, with bongs, and uh, they have to talk in code, and maybe there's some pornography, and there's all sorts of stuff they've got to, you know, they sell pipe tobacco or whatever. Now they're slick, like, state-licensed stores where you can buy products with flashy packaging and all sorts of stuff. So yeah. I've, I've since said over and over again that one of the things that I lament the most is that smoking pot used to be so cool and now it is the lame. I I cannot imagine my children are going to smoke pot because it is the lamest thing now. It is unbelievably <laughs> lame. Is there's no danger associated with it, with it whatsoever. And and spoiler alert, kids um, and grown ups. Uh, you know what? Pot's not dangerous. So if those two <laughs> things are removed, if danger and the coolness of getting caught are removed from it, it is now just not not fun at all. It's just not cool anymore. I don't. I. 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 Uh, I would say that the, that it's not just because of the pandemic, but the fact that that I, who was someone in my twenties, would have been a really gung ho pot guy, and now I'm lucky if I'm if I'm frequenting a shop, you know, four times a year, and that's sad because there's I can just get on my bike and ride down to a pot shop and have no issues, but I, I it's just not cool anymore, man. It's not well, a part of that uncoolness, though, is how bougie a lot of these shops have gotten. Oh, it's yeah. not the yeah. mom and pop sort of, you know, smoke shop that I sort of expected would sprout up all over the place if they legalize this. The regulations, of course, the laws are written in such a way that it's big business. Right. And they all look like these sort of designer, you know, like furniture stores. That's what they all look like I from the outside, except for the neon green. And they just look like the sort of people that. I like. I don't want to go in there. So I. I so I don't I'm gonna know bet what it though, is, but I can. So Mike, I'm gonna bet that you haven't been inside of a pot shop since it's been legalized in Washington. Is that correct? No. Okay. Um. So it isn't. It. it 
It isn't true that it's all been. Since I was like 22, so I mean, right. no, I haven't been inside of any of that. So I'll tell you, and and this is the like, like we mark it down on the calendar. This is the one time that I get to tell Mike that he's wrong after having known him for 10 years. <laughs> is is uh, for the most part, the people who produce and who have the shops are small businesses, and the people who are producing it are individual farms. Um, it has yet to be in the place where huge companies are are coming and trying to. Um, trying to to sort of morph into a giant faceless Walmart of pot. That hasn't happened yet. And um, But we do have chains though. And they oh, we are do have remarkable. Chains. They are and yeah, the, it mean, will happen. It certainly will happen. We're still in that golden age uh where it's mostly small farms. I mean I have a my brother in law's cousin is a pot grower in Washington State. And so uh I have, you know, third hand third hand experience on sort of what it is. Um it uh, you know, make no mistake R.J. Reynolds will, you know, R.J. Reynolds and Nestle will eventually get their hands on it and find a way to, you know, uh, to change the laws so that they can own everything. And it'll eventually be on the on the rack in every, uh, you know, every Circle K market and every Walmart and every Target uh, that's that's legal. But for right now, it's still a bit of the Wild West. A bit. What are the big companies going to be called? Are we going to have Weed R Us and... Yeah. <laughs> pot, I don't know. Uh, probably. I think I already kind of see it. They all have a certain look to the stores. Oh, where they, I don't, they definitely do. It, there is. And it's a sort of look to a store that makes me go, I don't care what you're selling. I don't want to go in there because it's the same kind of vibe about it that feels like a music snob. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It feels like, like not only that, like a rich libertarian music snob. Um, so there's this kind of vibe of, hey, I'm just one of the guys, but I made a bunch of money, you know, coding in the early 2000s, and now I'm a millionaire, and now I'm going to own all of this stuff, but it's going to, I don't know, there's just this bougie element to it. That, they look like an Apple store or something. Well, they, Yeah, they look a lot more like an Apple store, and sometimes they aren't even, apparently, there's one called, I don't know, it has a name that I don't want to give it free advertising, but I've seen like six locations for it, and I thought it was a furniture store <laughs> for the longest time, that <laughs> I kept seeing everywhere, and it just, you know, most of them have like the bright green neon, and they try to be kind of cool. The coolest looking pot store I saw was in a, on a native um, reservation because they had the sort of like native design, you know, that you get with a lot of the tribes out here of like a um, totem pole, that sort of art design. But it was a pot leaf done that way. And I was that's like, cool. oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. That's a pretty cool logo. That's the only one that I've seen so far. It still looks kind of bougie. And, <laughs> but at least from a, a graphic design standpoint, it looked better than most. <laughs> so, uh, Paul, one thing I want to ask you. Um, sure. Uh, you're, not an, you're not an American, and you do take in a lot of our culture through media because we're just monsters who've taken over everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is there is there an element of American culture that you just don't understand or you think is gross? Because I mean, it's like just to kind of turn it around a little bit. I would say the equivalent is like in Australia, it'd be like Vegemite. We don't understand it, and we're kind of fearful of it, <laughs> and we don't really under we don't know what it is, and we. If somebody sells it over here, it would definitely be a novelty product. But there's just kind of a a baseline understanding that it's gross <laughs> and is there what is the american vegemite <laughs> um you guys are obsessed with peanut butter in a way we're not um, oh, you put yeah. your peanut butter in all your chocolate and 
stuff like that, and you know, you um, celebrate the peanut butter in things. We we don't do that. Peanut butter is just a you know, it's just a spread to go on your toast and things like that. So uh, we've never gone down that path. Um, clearly, the gun thing. We just, I just don't get the gun thing because we've we're raised in a society. I mean, we never had to free ourselves from any oppression, um, and never factored that into our formation of government or anything like that. So, but but you, know, you do have it, a bunch of animals that can kill you. <laughs> oh, we've got animals that can kill us, but you know, you don't. I, I can kill them with a stick. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I mean, I live on a farm and I'm, you know, I'm literally, you know, I will walk out and see a snake a few times a year and go, oh shit, there's a snake. Um, you know, but I've got a dog that will kill a snake. I've, you know, I've occasionally run over one with a ride on lawnmower and go, oh shit, that's messy. Um, but yeah. <laughs> The, the animal thing here, I mean, we love to play it up in Australia because we love to appear, you know, tough. You know, oh, look, uh, bloody hell, there's a snake everywhere. You know, and there are parts of Australia that are dangerous, but they're no more dangerous than the Everglades and things like that. But, uh, you know, uh, you just keep an eye out for things. But, uh, but the gun thing is just completely perplexing that, you know, how can your society be safe when everyone has a gun and, you know, people are at the whims of their... Um, their, how drunk they are, how angry they are, um, how upset they are, and they can go and get a gun. That's just insane to me. I, I just uh, have to interject. One... I just have to interject, Paul, because I think it can't be true that you're not safe without guns. Because I've seen the 1984 Russell Mulcahy movie Razorback, and I know that it's not possible <laughs> to kill giant monstrous boars with sticks. You definitely need <laughs> explosives and guns. If that's, I think that was a documentary called Razorback, directed by the director of Highlander. <laughs> uh, yes, I do remember Razorback. I, I really like that film. It's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we just replace our guns with cars. So we do everything that a gun can do with a car instead. Um, <laughs> you take out, you take out a shopping mall with your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had a really big... Um, there was a place called Port Arthur down in Tasmania, which was um, like a tourist destination, and some guy went down there and shot about 30 people. Um, and everyone just went shit and we changed the laws and now no one has automatic weapons in Australia. Um, and it's really, really hard to get a weapon in Australia. We, I mean, most, uh, terrorist attacks that have happened in Australia have been a guy with a knife or a guy with a car, uh, cause it's really hard to get a gun. Um, I live in a rural area, so I do see guns around, but, uh, it's mostly when someone wants to, uh, shoot a sheep that's in pain, <laughs> you know, put it out of its misery. That's usually what guns are for around here. I mean, I hear people shooting rabbits, you know, on long weekends and that. But yeah, I mean, it's a completely different attitude. Like, um, you guys go, you know, Americans go, how can you feel, feel free without these things? And we're like, we feel free and we don't have any of those things. It's not embedded into us. It's not baked in. It's, yeah, it's, it's not fundamental. It's, you know, but it, you can't make people understand the difference I mean, unless you experience it and you live it. Probably yeah. the most foreign-sounding thing that you've mentioned, a thing that I just can't comprehend, is you mentioned that a terrible thing happened in your country and you immediately passed a law to prevent it from happening again. <laughs> I, I don't know what that's like. I really don't. Because <laughs> it just seems like what we do here is we fight really viciously about how, oh, you don't want to politicize that or something, and then a bunch of people call each other names, and then we start acting like we want to do something, and then we don't do anything, or we do about 5% of what we should do, and then we congratulate ourselves, and then we act shocked and horrified when it happens again. 
which is usually <laughs> within a month. So, yeah, yeah it's, it is a frustrating I, thing to be an American. I do feel, though, when I was growing up, that American culture was more removed from Australia. Like, um, I, you know, I'm a nerd, so I love toys and that. And you guys would get everything and we would get like a quarter of what you would get. Um, and I never knew what NBC or CBS meant when I was young. Um, but over the years, like, I only got to America for the first time four years ago. And when I got there, it was pretty much the same as Australia, <laughs> yeah, shopping wise. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think there's a certain thing to be said, and I, 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 from the sound of it, Paul, you're old enough to know this. Is there something to be said that there was a time when globalization hadn't flattened everything out, and like I went to, I was had a stopover. I went to Australia about ten years ago. I want to say 2009. It's whenever the Japan had the huge tsunami. Uh, where the ah. uh, I don't remember what year that can't remember what year that was. Anyways, oh the Fukushima, the Fukushima the Daiichi one. Yes. happened after that. Uh, we were gonna go to me and my wife were gonna go. This is before we had children, and uh, uh, it was like two weeks before we were supposed to go. Uh, the typhoon hit the and uh, um, they were having blackouts and stuff. And our another thought was is it would be really really selfish of us to just say we're gonna go on this trip to Japan in the fact that there are going to be some people who probably don't have power and their stores are closed and to expect them to like accommodate us. And so we sort of switched that. And then we ended up going to Australia, which was fantastic. I loved it going there. It was amazing. On the way back, we came through Hong Kong and I was amazed at the first thing I, after getting off the train from the Hong Kong airport, the first thing I saw was a Seven Eleven, and the Seven Eleven had a <laughs> giant cardboard cutout for the transformers, one of the transformers movies. And I was like, well, this yeah. is, it's the, the culture has been so flattened that yeah, the language, the language on the science changes. But if you live in most parts of, of, of America, you go down any neighborhood and there's, there's some little community, the little community with uh, signs that are not in English. And so for me, I was like, eh, this is the thing that's that's common around the world now is just like all these brands and things are pretty much the same wherever you go. I would just be terrified. Yeah. I mean, if I go to Hong Kong and I see the Transformers thing, you go into a, a culture that has this vibrant and amazing, you know, cinematic legacy and it's created all these amazing things and you land there and you see this ugly, stupid American thing there and you're like, God, no. And you feel like Oppenheimer in that moment. <laughs> you're like, what have we done? Oh, my God. Yeah, I just, yeah. I I do want to ask you a little bit, Paul, about peanut butter. I, I think I talked to you briefly huh. about this before, but... It's kind of strange because my sister was an exchange student in Adelaide and I believe the mid to late 90s and her host family specifically asked her to bring as much peanut butter as she could. <laughs> and I was always curious about that. And then I add that to a remark that's made in the first season of Lost by the Australian character Claire, who really wants peanut butter. And she says as part, and again, this is a script written by an American. So I take it with a grain of salt. Uh, she goes, Oh yeah, I get it. I'm the only Australian who likes peanut butter. And I put that <laughs> together in my head with the thing with my sister. And I'm like, what is going on with peanut butter in Australia? It's, <laughs> it's just not love the way it is in the United States. Or is it, was there some kind of peanut butter famine that happened in the late nineties? <laughs> um, I've got no idea, honestly. I mean, Adelaide, Adelaide people are weird. We're just going to get, get that out there. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, um, we do have a lot of nut allergies. My wife was in childcare for a long, long time, and you know, all the nuts are banned. You can't bring the nuts into the childcare centre because you're going to kill some kid. Um, you know, and anaphylaxis and all that. It, it it's a big deal, and it seems to be it seems to be around a lot more than when I was a kid. So uh, you know, the modern age is killing people, obviously. Um, but yeah, I don't know where peanut butter fits into it. I mean. To me, it, it's no more important than, um, or maybe jam's more important to you guys, you know. Peanut butter and jelly, we don't, we don't do that. We've never done that. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard from a, a friend of mine, um, who lived in China briefly, um, our friend Rosalind, uh, she said that root beer is something that's really, really kind of frowned on outside of the United States, that we like it and no one else does. Yeah. Well, I mean, root is a is a euphemism for intercourse, so... Oh, um, yes, that's right. Yeah, who wants that? <laughs> oh, I think a lot of people would buy that. Well, isn't the isn't the thing the root beer thing though is that it's uh it's just one of those I don't I don't know if it's it's sarsaparilla what we is the alternate name that we call it here what was the the antecedent for root beer was sarsaparilla or sarsaparilla because there was a specific root that was native to North America and you know like if you're a you're in the found the frontier land you you make do with what you have and so you made this weird bitter drink out of out of a root and i feel like that's the, the idea of it didn't really exist anywhere else except for here so why would anyone why would any other country have an affinity for it if it was something that just originated here i would imagine that the root beer that you buy now is so far removed from uh, the actual organic basis for a root beer that it like i don't think an a and w root beer probably tastes like sarsaparilla at all i'm guessing um, Probably who, who who knows what it's even who knows what that's even made out of I uh, we're at the we're at the the point I think when um you know Coca Cola saturation has been on the planet for how many years like 40, 50 years now um that it goes back at least a hundred though I mean you know where where soda comes from right the original like soda soft drinks that's that's bogus medicine yeah that was sold that's right. why they had them. At the uh, fountains, at uh, pharmacies, right. and and places like that, um, like Dr Pepper, when it was originally sold, made a lot of really scurrilous claims about what it could do, including <laughs> like curing insanity and stopping the softening of the brain. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of bullshit that they they said they could do. The problem was is that once all that stuff was exposed, people still like drinking it. <laughs> and they just kind of like kept alcohol. it around. <laughs> so, Paul, what's your what's your favorite uh, non-alcoholic soda? What's your what's your uh, what would be your choice? Are are you a slave to the Coca Cola mentality? Um, I'm I like Pepsi Max. Um, oh, oh wow. I, yeah, that's yeah. that's a, definitely um, a 21st century drink. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I used to drink Coke Coke all the time. Um, and then I discovered I was addicted to it, so I'd get really bad headaches if I wasn't drinking some Coke every day. Um, and then I would drop it all together, and um, but I, I still like the flavour of soft drinks. I mean, I'm a terrible person. I don't like the taste of water that much, so I, I drink a lot of um, sugar-free soft drinks because um, they've gotten better in the last 20 years than they used to taste I think super that, fake. And I think that's totally true. Pretty good. I think that's very true. Yeah, so I tend to drink um, a uh, sugar-free Sprite and alternate it with like one or two 
uh, sugar-free Pepsi Max uh, every day. So, yeah. I mean, this is quality content. Do we have a Patreon for people to get this? <laughs> I, I know that Mike's preference is – I don't think you have a preference. I think you would do the Coke or the Pepsi, right, Mike? I think you'll go either I, way. I tend to prefer Coke to Pepsi, though mm. I have to admit of – you know, all of these major, you know, billion dollar companies, I tend to root for Pepsi, not not in the Australian sense, but in the, <laughs> the cheering session sense. Pepsi. Root for Pepsi. Don't. That's an ad campaign that, that has limited appeal. Uh, but I, I tend to cheer them on a little bit because it feels like even though their product isn't as good, that they try harder. <laughs> it's like they kind of know that they're always going to be in second place. They were always the one that got the big, you know, celebrity campaigns and they would get appear in movies and things like that. So I'm always kind of like, yeah, good on you, Pepsi. You're trying. Yeah, I wish I liked you more. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing sadder when you enter an environment where it's completely locked up by Coke and there's no Pepsi, like um, an airport and every single store right. sells Coke and there's no Pepsi to be seen. So it's sad. Yeah, I think a lot of it is they probably have like a licensing deal that it's pretty rare um, to to basically see uh, Pepsi product. I don't know. Pepsi products are probably in in twenty to thirty percent of restaurants here. Most places tend to be Coke. Like no, sit down restaurants lean Pepsi. Yeah, but fast food restaurants lean Coke. I agreed. Yeah, at least in my perception. Yeah. Then there's like that that. That radical third party, the uh, the Dr Pepper, which is owned, I think, by yeah. Snapple. It's not really a thing here, Dr Pepper. So it's supposed to be oh. prune. It is supposed to be prune flavored, which is also a fairly is strange it? basis for. But I, like I said, the, the modern Dr Pepper is probably fields away from actual prunes. But yes, Dr Pepper, the original, was supposed to be a prune flavor with seltzer and probably cocaine or something. Who knows? Because <laughs> <laughs> every time I hear an explanation of what Dr Pepper is supposed to taste like, it just sounds like one of those BS urban legend explanations that you used to get in elementary school where the kids on the playground are like, oh, you know, that's supposed to be made out of prunes, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. That sounds kind of bullshitty. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you really have a code for Mortal Kombat that'll make everyone <laughs> naked. <laughs> it just it, it always just kind of sets off my alarm a little bit. And, you know, I don't know. I just, I enjoy it. And I can only tell you that um, my girlfriend Piper has referred to the flavor of Dr. Pepper as sweet dirt. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm um, getting back to Vegemite. The mistake most people make is they spread it thick. Um, it is, it is basically to change the taste of bread to slightly something different. So I mean, it's kind of salty. You want to spread it really thin uh, and have it with butter. If you have it thick, you're getting too much, uh, too much salt and too much um, yeasty flavor. So uh, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that, Americans. Um, so I think is, the, is Marmite Australian, also Australian? I think it is, but it's it's kind of like the RC Cola to Vegemite. So, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's it's less popular. I think it has, actually has a bit of uh, British background to it, but you know the the Brits are where taste buds go when they've had enough. Um, yeah. yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, but I mean, I think the number one thing that, uh, as an Australian, I can bring to the world is Tim Tams now. So, I mean, have you guys heard of Tim Tams? Have no. you ever had a Tim Tam? No. I've heard okay. of them. So, all I right, don't so think I've some... ever had one. 
All right, I'll, I'll send you some Tim Tams, you guys. Um, but basically, they're, they're, we call uh, what you call a cookie, we call a biscuit. Um, what you call a biscuit, we call a scone or something like that. So I, it's we're getting really down the rabbit hole as far as terminology here. But um, yeah, a Tim Tam is a chocolate-coated biscuit with a core of chocolate inside it. And uh, Australian chocolate is very, very good. It's um, you know better than American chocolate. It's it's a fact. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> if somebody just flipped a table. <laughs> Yeah, so a pack of Tim Tams has got about a dozen biscuits in it, um, and they're delightful. They come in different flavours. Um, uh, a Tim Tam slam is where you have a hot beverage and you dip your Tim Tam into it, and the end sort of melts and the core starts to melt, and then you can drink through your uh, beverage like a, a chocolate straw, which ooh, is... Um, ooh. Ooh, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's worth trying too. So I tend to, uh, you know, people I like, I, I tend to send them gift packs, and it usually has a pack of Tim Tams in there, maybe some Australian, uh, you call them candy, we call them lollies. Why, why are all these differences? They're so trivial, but they're there. Um, I yeah, don't so. know. <laughs> the one that kind of gets me, though, is the, the, the way that the word slides over, whether it's, you know, biscuit or, you know, that it's, we're using the same words, but we're sliding them over to different, it's like there's this scale, and... You know, when you guys moved over to uh, the metric system, it moved all of these words over as well, and we're still on the old system. Well, we're not, we're not saying that somebody weighs like three stone, but we're, we're we're pretty far back there in terms of the sort of cultural differences. I it's kind of weird though when I think about it. I'm fascinated by watching uh, media from countries that also have English as a primary language because there's enough cultural similarities that those differences just seem like I'm watching, you know, a world that's in a different universe. So if I watch an episode of Doctor Who and somebody goes into a supermarket, all the the candy and bread has different labels on it, and I find myself just staring at it because Mm. I don't know what any of these candy bars are. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sad when you're in another country and you're trying to capture that one, uh, you know, experience of something that you miss. And, you know, like... I went to Japan. I, I missed milk terribly. Like you just couldn't find, you know, milk like I knew it anywhere. So interesting, chocolate milk or something like that. It's very strange. I, yeah. I in my in my brief sojourn to Australia, I, I, there's not a lot that I can remember, and that's not because Australia wasn't memorable. I do, however, remember having when I was in Townsville. I do remember having a hamburger with a thinly sliced pickled beet. On in in between the buns, and it was like it was one of the best things that I've ever had. And if you ever, if you if you sort of suggest this to an American who would putting beets on a hamburger, it, it beets are they exist in that culinary category that in America that is you know arugula and beets and quinoa or whatever that people believe that you're some kind of like weirdly pious, earth loving hippie like. Commando Crusader, if you even suggest beats as a thing. But I'm like, no. I don't know. When I hear beats, I think of something you pull out of the ground and throw at a bad guy in Super Mario Brothers 2. <laughs> no, uh, we call it beetroot when it's uh, sliced up. So uh, we're getting back to the root word again, which is really weird. But yeah, I mean, it's traditionally an Aussie hamburger will have, um, uh, you know, a patty, it'll have lettuce, it'll have. Um, Tomato or tomato for you, gentlemen. Uh, you'll have 
uh, pineapple quite a lot and uh, a fried egg and some bacon and uh, beetroot. It's and, it's a, it yeah. is it was amazing. It was the sort of thing yeah, where it's I was really like, good. Where and and maybe it's because there maybe it's because the pickled cucumbers was not a thing there. I mean, I don't, I you I'm probably you guys have some probably have some amazing cucumbers that I've never seen. Um, no, but, no. But, but pickled cucumbers are really really the best most ubiquitous completely nutritionless garnish that we have in america they're fucking everywhere and all they all they're they do is make your heart amazing yes i mean they're amazing but all they do is they just make your arteries a little harder that's all <laughs> they don't do anything that's else. all the best things do that though <laughs> yeah australia never had to have a reckoning with um cucumber until mcdonald's hit the markets so Ooh, before that oh. you know cucumber on a burger was a nothing so you know we'd never heard of it and it was like oh there's these green things that no one wants and you chuck them at the window and watch them slide down. <laughs> <laughs> I have been fascinated. When did McDonald's really become a thing in Australia? Um, I am going by memory and not facts, but I would say mid seventies. So okay, uh, that's when I like when I was a real young child. It wasn't a destination, but I think by the time I was about ten, it was. So somewhere around there, yeah. Has, and this is something I've asked on other episodes before, and you have at least the experience of having there's, – there's a common perception, I think, that McDonald's food has gotten worse over the years. And I think it has too, at least in my memory. I can remember liking it as a kid, but I also liked a lot of things as a kid that I don't like <laughs> now, like the He-Man cartoon. So I don't know if it was just a, a lack of a palate um, or – has this food actually gotten worse? And I feel like it's gotten worse. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's certainly gotten more expensive, and it doesn't feel as uh, value for money as it used to. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's gotten worse or I've just got a more sophisticated taste bud going on now. Or I'm just old, and it's bad for me, and I know that. That doesn't make it taste worse for me, though. I mean, if anything else, knowing that something is 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 moving me a bit hastily along to <laughs> the loving arms of death, it seems to make it tastier than <laughs> than the other way around. Um, if it feels like something is just going okay, it's like that machine in the Princess Bride where it just takes a year off of your life, except <laughs> it tastes good. I think that's a, I think that's the uh, the double bacon cheeseburger at Jack in the Box. I think it's that yes. machine. Yeah. Um, oh, for I, me, that's the Jack in the Box tacos. I know that they've been mentioned before. They are not objectively good, but they're also amazing, and I can't explain that contradiction. They're 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 uh, the word I would use is effervescent. It's like after you've eaten them, it's almost like you haven't eaten anything, with the exception of perhaps the stomach cramps you might get. You have like a thirty-five percent chance of getting afterwards. That's <laughs> yeah, the Jack in the Box taco <laughs> legacy. <laughs> But that's that's also what I get with the the spicy chicken sandwich at Popeyes, which is that I I am making a deal that I'm I'm involved in informed consent that I know what this is going to do to my stomach, <laughs> and I'm I'm choosing to say that this is worth the cost that it, that the taste that I'm going to get from that thing will mean that I will have an unpleasant bathroom experience the next day, and I'm like okay deal <laughs> it's it's like it's like rocky it's like rocky three in reverse where in that movie he has to take a beating before so he can win and this one i win and then i take the beating after the fact uh. 
Again, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thanks, Paul. And uh, we also want to send a special thank you out to our Patreon episode sponsors. We have more of them than we think are possible still. It's still playing hell with my imposter syndrome. <laughs> so a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvey, Tom the Belgian, Zuri Russell, Wim the Belgian, Calzone, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, and Sterling Taylor. So thank you, folks. We love you to death. If you want to become an episode sponsor, please do check us out on our website, RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Click the big green button or go to Patreon.com slash RadioVersusTheMartians. And until then, we will catch you guys next week. No, next month. Next month. No, no promises. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys. Bye. Thank you so much. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.